I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the Gospel according to John. John chapter 16. John chapter 16 will begin at verse 4. John chapter 16, beginning at verse 4, where Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. Let us pray together. God, we're just so grateful for your love and grace and for this privilege of studying your holy word together. And now as I stand before these, your people, this, your church, I pray that this would be your message and not my own through the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. During the season of Lent, we are looking at an amazing grace series, looking at that powerful, amazing word, grace. For me, the definition of grace, as I've shared before, is, is love in action. It's, it's love that does something. And God's amazing grace is God's love for us that is willing to do something, to make a move. It's, it's God acting. We looked last week at prevenient grace, that grace that goes before us. It's that grace that even though we were dead, according to Ephesians chapter 2, God does something. And God does it first, which is why all grace is prevenient grace. It's a grace that goes before us. But today we look at convicting grace, convincing grace. We shared last week how John Wesley has a metaphor for the various movements of grace. He pictures it as a house. And there's the porch of the house, which is prevenient grace. That is what invites us to come forward, invites us in. The door of the house is justifying grace. That's where the grace of Jesus Christ saves us from our sins. And when we enter into the house and we get to live in the house, dwell in the presence of God, growing in being who God is calling us to be, that's sanctifying grace. Convicting grace is between prevenient grace, that grace that goes before and helps us to hear the call of God, and justifying grace. Convicting grace convinces us to step toward the door. It's what causes our eyes to look at the door and realize we want to go through that door. We want to approach that door. We want the grace of that door. Conviction. Now, most of us, if you're like me, when you think about conviction, 
convicting grace, it doesn't sound a whole lot like grace. As a matter of fact, conviction oftentimes sounds a lot like judgment. It, it sounds a lot like condemnation. And sometimes I will share that we preachers, if we're not careful, we preach conviction as being a condemnation, as a judgment. And to a real degree, it does include judgment. Just like the cross, it is a sign of our forgiveness. It's also a sign of judgment because it shared this is how bad the world got in order to necessitate the cross. But conviction is really a gift from God. It's, it's God, again, doing something to share with us this is why we need Him. Wesley referred to it then as convicting grace. John Wesley, the forefather of the Methodist Church, he, he believed that, that conviction is God speaking to us. It's that nudging from deep within where God is then calling us to examine ourselves, to see our need of Him, and to do something about it, to approach God's door. That justifying grace, that saving grace that can change us. One of the shows that Nancy and I sometimes watch, just to try to relax a little bit, is a, is a TV show called The Neighborhood. Some of you may have seen it. One of the things I like about it is just kind of a comedy. It's kind of light, doesn't require excessive brain cells. It's something that I can come in when I'm kind of tired and just kind of wind down a little bit and laugh a little bit. Well, this past week when we were watching the show, Calvin, who was played by Cedric the Entertainer, Calvin needed a physical, and finally his wife had talked to him about how long it had been since he had been to the doctor. You need to go get a physical. He finally relents. He goes and gets a physical, and when he has his physical, everything is fine. Blood work looked good. Everything looked good, and the doctor at the end is going, everything is looking good so far. The only thing we need to do now is the colonoscopy. Oh, he was not, as you can imagine, because, well, probably that very word for you when I said it, if you're over 50, just kind of made you go ahead and shiver a little bit. And, and so Calvin kind of has that reaction. He goes, no, thank you. I don't need that. You know, I don't want that. And the doctor tried to explain it's really not that big a deal, Calvin. What we do is we take this little camera and we'll go up through the large intestines. We're going to zigzag in and out around the small intestines until the camera gets just about here, taking pictures all along the way. And then all of a sudden we'll just reel that camera back in and out pops the camera. That did not help him decide that he wanted it. So he's wrestling, the family's trying to convince him an appointment is made by his wife and his friend, his next door neighbor, Dave, is going to take him to the appointment. When they get in the car, Calvin tries his best to figure out any other way to get Dave to take him anywhere except for his colonoscopy. And finally, they have this intimate moment of conversation where Dave is asking, why? Why, Calvin? And he finally confesses and admits, I, I don't want to know. If something's wrong, I just don't want to know. And his friend Dave looks at him and says, But Calvin, 
Not knowing doesn't keep you from being sick. It just keeps you from being able to do anything about it. I love that. Not knowing doesn't keep you from being sick. It just keeps you from being able to do anything about it. So Calvin then consents and he goes and has his colonoscopy. You know, convicting grace is that diagnostic in our spiritual lives. It's trying to help point out that which may need to be dealt with. It's only when you know what you're dealing with that you're able to do something about it. It it points out that which is wrong so that it, it can be treated. Convicting grace, conviction is not an angry God shouting to you in judgment. Conviction is a loving God pleading with you to fix something in your life that could otherwise kill you. Hear that again. Conviction is not an angry God shouting to you in judgment. Conviction is a loving God pleading with you to fix something in your life that could otherwise kill you. That's why John Wesley believed that conviction was grace, that it's a convicting grace where God is pleading with us to see what is broken, to see what is happening in our spiritual lives, to see where it is that we have turned, where it is that we have rebelled, where it is that sin and trespass, as Paul says in Ephesians, has entered into our lives so that then we can do something about it. And through God's grace, God can heal it. It's the diagnostic. Conviction is grace rather than judgment. It it gives us the opportunity to turn. It, It gives us the opportunity to acknowledge our sin and our brokenness and then be who God has called us to be. If you've ever been part of a recovery program, one of the things that you often hear is that the first step to recovery is acknowledging that we have the problem. And conviction is giving us the opportunity. It's God's grace pointing out to us, this is the problem so we can deal with it, lest we let it kill us. Lest we let it destroy us. Lest it breaks us and alienates us any further and our relationship with God. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a great German theologian, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he shares that cheap grace is the enemy of the church. And that the challenging thing is that we so often want cheap grace. We just want to know that we're forgiven, but we really don't want to have to face up that for which we are being forgiven. He believed that cheap grace is forgiveness without repentance. That would be forgiveness without conviction. That would be without an acknowledgement of where I am broken. In John 16, the scripture that we just read, Jesus had been sharing with the disciples about his departure, that the time was coming when he would die and then he would rise again and he would ascend to be with God. And And he says in verse 7, John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, 
It is to your advantage that I go away. It's actually a good thing, Jesus says, that I'm going away because something is going to happen as a result of my leaving that is actually going to be a blessing to you. It's going to be a grace for you. He said, for if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. That, that Greek word for prove is the Greek word elenko. And, and what it actually means is, to prove or to convince, to convict, to expose, to rebuke, to reprove. It's why then if you look at the New American Standard Version of John 16 verse 8, the scripture says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. If you look at the English Standard Version, it says, and when he comes, he will convict the world again concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Because that word prove actually is the word convict. And catch this, Jesus said, it's actually to your advantage that I go away so that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the advocate can come and convict you and convict me and convict the world. Because conviction is not an angry God in judgment, but a loving God pleading. It's God reaching out to us and calling us to be honest about who we are and where we are. It's that diagnostic that we may dread, and yet at the same time it can point out, here's what happens, here's what's going on before it gets to the point that it kills you. Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. Paul had an intense relationship after he began the church in Corinth. It, it, it led to a series of letters back and forth and subsequent visits. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote no fewer than four letters to the church at Corinth. We have two of them. But one of the things that happens is after his first trip to Corinth, some Jewish Christian missionaries come behind him, begin to critique and criticize Paul and undermine Paul and his ministry there, pushing a different agenda. And when Paul returns for a second visit, we know that something happens where he's wronged. Someone there wrongs him, offends him. Someone there does something that hurt him deeply. He even writes that it was painful. It was painful. But then he gets some good news from Titus, and Paul then writes back to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, and he goes, Now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. Catch this. For you felt a godly grief, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, 
But worldly grief produces death. Godly grief. You were, you were convicted and, and that allowed for a change. Conviction. Godly conviction is an act of grace. That's why we call it convicting grace. You, you see it in Acts chapter 2. It's, it's the story right after Pentecost when uh, the Holy Spirit is breathed upon the church and some 3,000 people are saved. And as Peter is preaching to them after the Holy Spirit is poured out, you, you hear in verse 37 that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? That's conviction. I just heard this amazing love of God. I heard this amazing thing that Christ has done for us. What do we do? I now know that I need that door. I've approached the porch. I'm looking at the door. I need the door. What do I do? That's conviction. Conviction. 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica said, Our message of the gospel came to you, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Conviction, that diagnostic that allows us to see what's really going on. You might remember David's confession in Psalm 51. It's a it's a psalm that we use often in the season of Lent where David is confessing his sin. And in verse 3 he said, For I know my transgressions, and, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That allowed David to move toward the door. If you keep reading the scripture, there's story after story for example, early in Jesus' ministry, Peter goes and uh, Jesus rather goes and gets in Peter's boat because the crowds are all around and he needs to get away from the shoreline just a little bit where he can teach the crowds more effectively. And, and he's there in Peter's boat. And after he finishes, Jesus says, now let's go out into the deep water and drop the nets. Peter goes, Lord, we have been fishing all night long. We've caught absolutely nothing. We're exhausted. Jesus goes, trust me, move out to the deep water. And they do drop the nets. And they bring in so much fish that they had to call help to come in and gather it. And when Peter realized what had happened, listen to Luke 5 verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down on his, his, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, go away from me, Lord. Go away from me, for I am a sinful man. Wow. It's that moment where we see ourselves honestly. The prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 that leaves the father and turns his back on his family and turns his back on God and wastes everything in riotous living, we're told. We're told that when he hit rock bottom, he came to himself. Luke 15, verse 17, he came to himself. That moment when you just take a good look, when the mirror is right there and you can't help but look at it. I love the story in Luke 18 of the two men who came into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. The Pharisee was blind and says, you know, I, I'm just awesome, I'm great. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. 
I go above and beyond. I wish more people were like me. The tax collector. Now that's the one that wouldn't even lift up his eyes, but instead beat on his chest and cried out, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. You see, conviction is that moment when we realize who we are and that allows God to do something about it. It's there when we realize who we are that we're able to repent and we're able to turn. John Wesley, in his sermon, The Lord Our Righteous, says this, We must repent before we can believe the gospel. We must be cut off from our dependence on ourselves before we can truly depend upon Christ. We must cast away all confidence in our own righteousness, or we cannot have a true confidence in His. Until we are delivered from trusting in anything that we do, we cannot thoroughly trust in what He has done and suffered. First, we have received the sentence of death in ourselves. Then, we trust in Him that lived and died for us. You see, repentance is deeper than, I'm sorry. Repentance is deeper than, oops, I don't want to do that again. Repentance is, I don't want to be that person again. I want to be changed. I, I want to be different. Conviction is not an angry God shouting in judgment. Conviction is a loving God pleading with you to fix something in your life that could otherwise kill you. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 1, you were dead. But God, verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, abundant in love, through His grace, brings you back to life. Conviction. It's not often that we think of conviction being grace. But that is exactly what it is. It is a God looking at you and me going, I refuse to leave you where you are. And I am begging you to come to me the door but for you to realize that I am the door, you first have to take an honest look at yourself. And that's conviction. John Wesley believed that our consciousness, that our conscience is actually the Holy Spirit talking to us, convincing us, you know this is wrong. You know better than that. You know you shouldn't have done this. You know you should have done that. It, it's the Holy Spirit speaking to us to remind us of who we're called to be. So I ask you, are you feeling conviction? And if so, it may feel like judgment, and the truth is there's some judgment to it, but it's not meant to be condemnation. It, it's meant to be grace. Because not don't, not knowing does not keep you from being sick. It just keeps you from being able to do anything about it. Conviction. 
And if we feel somehow that our sin and brokenness is not that big a deal, tell that to the God with scars in his hands. Conviction. It is an act of grace from a God who would do about anything to keep you alive with him forever. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, convict us by your grace. Help us to be honest with you and with ourselves on where we need to change. Help us to be honest of our sin, our trespasses, our brokenness. Help us to name it before you. For not knowing does not keep us from being sick. It just keeps us from being able to do anything about it. And not knowing does not keep us from being broken and our sin from being real. It just keeps us from approaching you for your grace and your salvation. So God, hold the mirror before us. Help us to be honest. Convict us with your grace so that you may save us and heal us with your grace. In the name of Jesus the Christ, amen.